Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals, with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. Go to creativelive.com slash audio to start learning now. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Protone Pedals, the secret tone weapon for guitar experts everywhere. Go to protonepedals.com to take your tone to the next level. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joel Wanasek, and A.L. Levy. All right, what's up, guys? Thanks for tuning into the show, and thanks to everyone at the forum for all the support. If you have questions or an idea for a topic you'd like us to discuss, visit www.joeysturgis.com podcast. You can also vote for the current questions and suggestions for next week's episode. I'm Joey Sturgis, and with me, as always, is Joel Wanasek and A.L. Levy. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hey, what's up? Hello. Hola. If you haven't yet, check us out on Twitter, and you can get the links on the website. You can also ask us questions there, and we'll try to answer them on the show. I'm actually double fisting coffee right now, because I'm a badass. I know you don't drink coffee, Joel, but do you drink coffee, Al? I love coffee, but I, I'm, um, I'm a caffeine aficionado, I guess, and I like to cycle my caffeines because I feel like <laughs> I feel like, I'm serious. I feel like I get uh, I build up a tolerance to certain types of caffeine. Now I'm sure that caffeine is just caffeine, but I don't know because I'll drink coffee for a while and then it stops working. I'll switch to Red Bull and then suddenly, you know, I've got wings and I'm zinging and then suddenly this doesn't work for me anymore. So it's back to coffee. But yes, I love coffee. Long winded answer. I should have just said yes. (laughs) I'm glad you brought up Red Bull because, uh, Apparently, someone sued them recently um, about the Red Bull gives you wings marketing thing. And <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't give you wings, and they proved it in court, and uh, Red, <laughs> Red Bull lost the lawsuit. So now they have to pay back. Like, Actually, there's a website you can go to. I forget what it is. Um, but if you just go there and you just say, yes, I bought Red Bull, they have to send you like $3 or something. Are you so that's really what that I saw something about that lawsuit, but that's really what it's about. Somebody sue them because you don't grow wings. Yes, amazing. I know that's so awesome. How, God, how is I that not it. like puffery or you know what I mean? I, 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 it just blows my mind how somebody could win that lawsuit. I mean, if I was the judge, I'd be like, just leave. <laughs> Why are you even in my courtroom? Yeah, it's ridiculous. like the hot coffee thing. Uh, you know, ever since that happened, people try to do that kind of shit all the time now. And that's why you see like so many warning labels on everything. Okay, now the hot coffee thing, it was really dumb too. But like, fair enough in a way. Like, it was an old lady, right? And I do still. Physical think harm. Physical there, harm. There was physical harm. I mean, the old lady did get burned. And again, it was an old person. So you could make the argument that. Yeah, while any reasonable person knows not to drive with coffee in their lap, uh, you know, <laughs> an, old people kind of have their own little category of of allowances for dumb behavior. But uh, when it comes to Red Bull gives you wings, like, wow, I cannot believe that somebody won that in court. That America is so great. Like, <laughs> only here could you do that. Yeah. Like, how How fucked up is that? I think in Russia, if you tried that shit, you just disappear. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I'm amazed that 
that Red Bull didn't have that person taken out. I, mean, <laughs> I would. I think they easily could have done it. I'm surprised he didn't get lambesist, you know? Uh, <laughs> oh, my sorry. God. Damn. <laughs> sorry. Whoa. Shots oh, fired. <laughs> I don't think it's too soon, so that works. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Today, we're going to be talking about some real-life producer shit. Um, this has always been an interesting topic to me. It's kind of something you, you learn along the way as you gain experience. Um, but it seems to come natural the more you work with uh, different types of musical people. And what we're calling it is the musical translator. Yeah. You know what's what's interesting to me about the whole professional musical translator idea? This is something where I feel like if producers and engineers just worked on their social skills a little bit, <laughs> and their life skills, we wouldn't have to be talking about this in quite so much detail. The fact that producers and engineers are just introverted, socially awkward weirdos um, <laughs> who border borderline Asperger's most of the time. This is the kind of people who make records. They're, who else would be cool with sitting in a dark room listening to a sample in phase or out of phase for 12 hours straight? Like, it takes a certain type. Definitely. Yeah, man, it's usually Usually not the same type as someone who has great social skills and is if you're not naturally extroverted and you're not a people person you have to adopt some people person skills you have to actually make a point of doing this in order to be able to communicate with your clients more effectively and know what the fuck they're saying when they don't know what they're saying yeah you know the funny irony of that is the producer is the guy who's supposed to be the people person because you're the one who gets to deal in the producer hat with all the egos all the label bullshit all the backstabbing all the drama all the guitar player sucks can't play his part so we got to find a way to get it on the record without making him feel too bad about himself ah fuck it let's just humiliate him and make him get better you know you're the guy that's uh got to do that you know and make the band and you know be the liaison between everybody and make sure that shit actually runs smoothly smoothly without any sort of problems, which is always fun. Absolutely. I think, though, everything you just said is the traditional definition of a producer. And an engineer was traditionally something different. Like, producer and engineer were two different guys. Yeah, today the lines are very blurred now. Exactly. I know very few guys who can just be the old school producer without being an engineer. Now, I know a lot of big time producers who who uh, delegate engineering tasks and do less of their own. That's normal. But still, they came up through an engineering background always these days, just like big directors in Hollywood always come up through the editing room. Well, the interesting question is, what does a producer do? And it's funny because um, I think as time goes on, the answer to the question starts to get more complex or even maybe more mysterious. Basically, what we're talking about here is... You're a professional musical translator. And what does that mean? Okay, so you're converting what people say into what they want. If you're working with a band and you're working on the mix or something, um, let's just say for the scenario, someone requests the bass to be turned up. That doesn't mean open the project and turn the bass up. Um, Maybe you've got frequency problems. Maybe you need to turn the guitars down. Things like that. That's basically what we're trying to expand on, musical translation and and how to get good at it and how to understand what you are actually trying to do without the artist really knowing what you're doing. 
Well, you have to be like a, a detective right. almost. Uh, like, uh, I relate it a lot to dating, um, and not to sound like a male chauvinist, but I've always done best in dating scenarios and in relationships. When I listen to what the girl does rather than what she says, because the girl could say a million different things, but her actual behavior and body language is what will tell this you. This is why people think women are crazy. Yeah, but <laughs> they're they're not crazy. You just don't know how to read them. Bullshit. If you think women are if you think women are crazy, you need to work on your translation skills and you need to learn to read body language. And it's very very similar. Like you were telling me Joey that there's a guy you used to work with where you could be like uh make it sound like a dark red swamp. And uh, he would play that back. So it's the same thing. If a guitar player, if a band member says to you, I want it to sound like I'm in space. I want it to sound like monster truck metal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tractor pull metal. Uh, yeah, I've been I've been told that before. Like, this is the tractor pull part. Yeah, and you got to know what that means. Yeah, it means a Chevy truck going through the mountains, Navy SEALs popping out of the ground or, you know, parachuting <laughs> onto the Chevy truck and just shit exploding everywhere with, like, Rob Zombie songs playing. And that's, <laughs> that's tractor pull metal. That's what I imagine. But you need to you need to know what what it is that they actually need. Like they're com- when they say they want something, they're communicating a need. But they're not the ones who are the expert uh, here. They're the client. You're the expert, so they may not know how to say it in your terms. And this frustrates a lot of mixer producers at first. Like why can't they just say adjust the ratio four to one? Like so t- take it to a four to one ratio. Yeah, they're never gonna be able to be if if they were on that level, they wouldn't be hiring you. So basically, your job is to convert those you know convert their language into technical shit. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've definitely had some backseat producers. Yeah, where they are telling me what ratios to choose and you know, some technical things that I may have already done or that I was planning to do 20 steps from now. And that actually is far more annoying in my experience than having to translate, make it sound like it's on a spaceship beamed up through Mars. And yeah, of course. Actually, I think the process of translating what people are asking you to do into actual actions is like the fun part of the job. It's actually like the artsy creative part. Uh, in a weird way, like they might say, you know, oh, the vocals just aren't loud enough, but that doesn't mean turn up the vocals. Maybe that means play around with some side chains, uh, do some automation. And, and to me, that's like more rewarding and more fun. And then the other hand, what you just mentioned, where the backseat producers trying to tell you like, oh, man, you should be using a three to one ratio on that guitar compressor, man. I, I know because I try it at home all the time and it sounds really good. And it just... Uh, you don't want to be dealing with that in comparison to dealing with musicians who are just trying to voice their perspective. Exactly. And I also think that, I think it's almost unavoidable in this day and age that you are going to get some backseat producers. However, if from the get-go you've got good communication skills and you can establish trust with your client to where they know that you know what you're doing, uh, that you will appease those backseat 
producers a lot more. Well, they should know that right off the get-go, though. I mean, because technically they're hiring you, and if you know if they knew better than you, you'd be hiring them to do the record, you know. And it's, I mean, to me, that's always well, yeah, gone without saying. But it's unfortunately some kids don't realize that they they just have that little bit of control freak in them. And it could be frustrating to deal with because, you know, you got to, you don't want to be like rude to them or whatever, but they don't understand that in your head, you have a vision usually. And I'll relate this to mixing because mixing is the worst when you have people over your shoulder. I mean, you need the band's opinion and feedback. It's very important when you're mixing, but a major problem is when you're like, dude, turn up the bass. The bass isn't loud enough. You're like, asshole, shut up. I'm working on the (laughs) snare drum right now or the relationship of the, you know, two to four K on guitars with vocals. I've got eight other steps I'm going to do. I can clearly hear the bass is too loud because, you know, I mix records for a living, believe it or not. You know, geez, what a fucking concept. <laughs> but um, I need my time to really just get in there and, and do my thing. And I, I hear that. Now, if I miss that, you know, please say something and speak up and we'll get it. And you don't want the band to leave unhappy or whatever, but they have to communicate. So what I usually do is I just kick them out of the room and I say, listen, give me some time to do my thing. I have this vision. I need to unlock what I'm hearing and my take on this, which is what you guys hired from, you have to trust me to to do this. And then please come in and absolutely beat the shit out of whatever I've done and have free reign on it. But I need my time to express my vision and what's going on that you're paying me for. And that really, I think at least to me is, takes care of about 90% of the problems in my experience. There's an interesting like behind the scenes studio thing. And I think it was for uh, uh, the used. They were working with John Feldman and they went to Chris Lord Algae to mix and it was interesting to me. It shows them going to the studio and Chris Lord Algae kicks them out. He's like, uh, yeah, we're just going to let Chris Lord Algae do his thing. And then um, when the song is done, we're going to come in there and listen to it. And that just goes to show you that this isn't just a bullshit thing that we're coming up with here. This like people even at the top do their best work alone. But I guarantee you that the trust between CLA and the used was already established to where when he said, or his assistant said, or whoever said, the man needs his time to do this on his own, that's how he works, and then you guys will get your revisions afterwards. And I guarantee you everyone was like, okay, cool, because they trust in what he's doing. And so uh, how this relates to guys at lower levels, the trust thing isn't quite as established. It's not like they're going to you because you have because you've mixed or produced 15 records that they grew up listening to like you might be the only guy in town who does some heavy stuff so you got the gig but that doesn't mean they entirely trust you so part of your job as translator is to uh is to build trust oh joel one one thing i i do need to say about what you said about how you know they hire you you're the expert they should let you do your your job i agree before you say that don't think that i'm saying that hey we always know and we're always perfect no no i know (laughs) absolutely not the thing is that that's that's a real intellectual viewpoint and i've got it too like hey they hired me why don't they just let me do my thing we're talking about music and art and music and emotional stuff. So yeah, that's a great point. And we're talking about their babies. So yeah, they may have hired you, but like they're going to go based on how they're feeling. And uh, so you have to not only, you know, you not only have to uh, 
appeal to the actual needs that they've got, but you also have to appeal to their feelings. And they need to feel good about everything that's going on. They need to feel like you can take the reins and run with it. And it won't be like the last time they recorded with somebody locally and everything got fucked up. I like that you said their baby. Um, Cause that does kind of put it into perspective. Like that, that is how it feels to them, especially when they're trying to trust you with everything you're doing. It's like, absolutely. It's like giving your baby to someone else, like a stranger almost. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the key to being successful at doing that AL is understanding and learning how to read things like body language and a little bit of psychology. And when you can go in and really read the band, you learn to interpret you, who's in charge, what the power dynamic is, you know, when the drummer's squawking, you know, how much of a say does he really have in the band and how much consideration you have to put into it or, you know, who's the main songwriter and you have to figure out the power dynamic of every band. And I feel like that's very important, especially when you're dealing with labels and things like that. It's a people thing. You got to get to know the people and you got to get to know what they're all about, this group dynamic. Um, I mean, that's what being a producer is. And it's funny because a lot of people think it's... Uh, replacing drums but it, it really is not right beats <laughs> yeah you know you know what else though is that trust is super important because who knows what their prior experience was so i i've noticed that a lot of these neurotic behaviors are not a reflection on you they're a reflection on what they dealt with before you oh yeah for instance if you get a baby national band who have only recorded with local yokel fuckheads and they had a real <laughs> real t- <laughs> it had a you know they had a horrible experience before you they're going to go in thinking that it's going to be the same and so a lot of their neuroses are going to be based on what they know and i've made the mistake of being like so uh did you by any chance get fucked over last time you went to the studio and uh you know and kind of like expose the wound and that doesn't go over well but if you understand that that's what happened rather than getting them to talk about it if you just understand that that's what happened then you have the ammunition to use uh in and employ trust building measures and there's nothing that builds trust more than showing people results i'll always ask the people um coming in i'll say you know who'd you work with last um i'll even go as far as trying to dig up how they felt about it and uh try to get like some i i don't know some history on what's going on because then i kind of know what to expect like you know they might say oh we worked with this guy and then i might know that guy's kind of weak on vocals and then um one of my goals will be to try to impress them with um my take on vocals you know what i mean and just really get in there and and build uh, a relationship a, a really positive relationship with the band yeah and it works the other way too like i just i had a band in here last year sometime who came in they went to a producer that we all know and they were just talking mad shit about him and i know him and i'm friends with him and it didn't sound right but uh, they were like talking mad shit and they were like, he yelled at us because we showed up with no pre-pro at all. And, was, and he was going You should have been yelled at for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was like, all right, n- these guys are babies. But then two days later, they start talking about who they recorded with before that. And again, total shit fest. Like this was wrong. That was wrong. This was wrong. That was wrong. And then a few days after that, they're talking about who they went with before that. And it's same thing. And so 
by hearing these stories, you get to learn about the band a little and realize they will never ever be happy. So, <laughs> so you actually, so you can learn also that you might be in a, you know, just to save yourself the heartache, you might be in one of those scenarios where you are working with somebody that's never happy. And that's good to know too. So it's not just that uh, you build trust with a band and you make them happy, but sometimes for your own fucking sanity, like <laughs> you know that you're working with one of those dudes who just has no limit and is just a bottomless pit. As a producer, it's really important to be careful with what projects you pick, just like mixing. You know, when you're not busy, you want to take as much as possible because you're like, yeah, you know, I got to keep the lights on and put food on the table. And when you're too busy, you still usually take everything as much as possible because you're crazy and... <laughs> You know, you, you can't say no to people. And I, Joey, I know you and I have that problem all the time. And it is hard to say no, when, especially yeah. when there's a lot of shit flowing through. But you fucking Guilty. need to learn to say no because, you know, <laughs> I know that I'm not the right fit for every band. I know Joey and AL, you guys aren't going to be the right fit for every single band. And there are some bands that I think each one of us would work brilliantly or any producer. Um, and some bands where we would be the worst possible person to hire. And unfortunately, you and the band don't know that going into the situation. And that can make it fun, you know, especially if you're, you know, I'll give you an example, like in mixing, you know, you're, you've already mixed a song, you send them the mix and they're like, dude, fuck this. And you're like, uh, okay, what does that mean? And you got to dig and you find out that they're just completely on a different page and how they want to hear it. And they, for whatever reason, don't know what they want or just weren't able to communicate it to you. And it's, it's frustrating because, um, you have to figure out the dynamic. For example, something I really try to push for is... Uh, some bands will come in and I'll pretty much sit down and take over the band and write most of the stuff for them. It just depends on what level of comfort. And some bands will come in and they're just such like, dude, it's done. Don't fuck with it. And I mean, if it's that good, and sometimes it is, you just sit back and hit the button really and try to make a little couple of suggestions here or there. But, you know, fueling the need to, I would say, like overproduce or making sure you don't underproduce, it, it's a fine line to learn. And it takes a lot of records and a lot of experience to really get that down and master that. But you need to learn to say no sometimes. And it helps to kind of pre-screen bands and at least know where they're coming from and what you're getting into before you take the project. Cause that can save a lot of headache and heartache. Cause you know, for example, if a country band hits me up, there's no freaking way I'm going to produce it or like a death core band. That's just not what I do. But you know, if it's a radio rock band and they're trying to write some radio rock songs, well, I'll probably be a decent guy to hire to do that. I want to say something about uh, a little thing you mentioned in there, which was, um, I want to say something about producers that write. I personally take kind of offense to that. I know that there's a, it all depends on a lot of different things. You know, if you're working with like John Feldman and he, of course he's going to come in and he's going to try to write some songs. That's, that's what he does. I'm in the radio world, honey. That's how it works. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it, it's not the same in, in every genre and, and especially, you know, in the pop industry or even in the hip hop, I think producers are mainly songwriters and not really, you know, session controllers or whatever you want to call it, translators. But I do have a problem with producers that write music, and I think that it should be a little bit more black and white. And it kind of annoys me that it's really blurry right now. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Agreed. And I can say that being 
a composer first. Like, I think I'm more of a music writer. Like, I'm better at that than I am at production. Like, music writing is probably what I'm best at and enjoy the most. And so you would think that when a band comes in unprepared, I'm stoked. Uh, I get to write some songs, but that's not the case at all. It, it annoys me to no end, man. I feel like bands should write their music and be ready to record it when we get together. And sure, we might change a few things, like maybe their chorus sucks so i'll give them a new chorus or whatever like the solo is garbage there's also the argument that um the band comes in unprepared on purpose because they want to see what will happen if they write with the producer but i think that's only okay if if it's been set up ahead of time and i'll tell you that yeah. more often than not it's not set up like that they just try to pull a fast one on you you guys got to come hang out with me sometime <laughs> <laughs> well we'll look Look, that's one thing is like, if it's old school, we're going to write this in the studio. The producer is like the extra band member. We're going to do it like that. We've got the budget and the time. Let's make the black album, you know, like that's one thing. But I agree. I feel like most bands are trying to pull a fast one. It's like, yeah, we've practiced. Yeah, we've got songs show up. We've got and they've got two guitar pro tracks and. That's it. And they never played the riff before. <laughs> Ever. And uh, I, I've, I've produced albums that have been released that like are like that. And I do feel like either the band is trying to pull a fast one on you or the management just does not give a fuck about the band as people. And they schedule too many things back to back to back. And they don't have time to write a record. And so before they know it, they're back in the studio. And somehow some manager thought two months would be enough time to write the album of their careers after being on tour for 10 months. Wow. You know someone that got two months to do that? I, I got a, pro, a prog band that's actually doing pretty well right now um, who came to me like that. And they, end, they ended up, they had four songs. The record did pretty well, man. They're doing all right. But wow, the stress. Uh, they came in, they had four songs in Guitar Pro. They had only played through one of them as a band. And they had to come up with the rest. And man... What a what a situation. I just can't believe you you think that two months isn't enough time. I get people all the time with like a week or two weeks of, of writing. No, and then... two months? Well, <laughs> dude, look at the genre. Like if you're talking about prog. Like, I guess, yeah, it takes a lot longer to write that. Yeah, technical prog, you know, with like eight minute long songs and stuff like that. That's two months is not enough time. You can write a pop punk EP in a weekend, but <laughs> <laughs> I disagree. Not a good one. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Well, listen, I guys, I sit on the complete opposite side of the fence at you guys in this because I work in really a different genre and a different market than you guys do. Um, and I totally understand and completely agree with everything you guys are saying. And I think all that is great advice. Um, I work in the radio world with a lot of like rock bands and the problem is most people can't write freaking hits. So what they do is they find a producer who can write the, you know, the top lines and understand the chords and the melodies. And for example, and that can deliver songs that are going to be big. Now in the pop world, it's all co-writers and all, you know, it's no, it's no secret Britney Spears or, you know, Katy Perry don't write their own music. They have teams of writers that sit down and they, the best of the best in the world. And they all submit, you know, 
200 songs. Yeah, people should know that there's camps for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Huge camps. Like, I mean, I know some guys in Dr. Luke's camp, for example. If you guys could see what goes on behind the scenes, I mean, just from what I've heard from them, it's just like, holy shit. I mean, it's it's really serious. And again, you can have 20 guys writing songs, and maybe none of those songs even get cut on an album. Now, in the rock world, a lot of times, my bands come to me, and they're just like, all right, well, let's write together. You know, we've got some ideas, but we're going to bring in 20 ideas, and we're going to sit down, and we're going to write. Because again, we're trying to write radio songs that are going to break you know, top 10, top 20 on a billboard chart and that are going to have a couple hundred thousand dollars of radio because, I mean, it legitimately costs like 80 grand just, for example, in Active Rock if you want to break top 40. So um, there's hundreds of thousands of dollars in that market invested on the ability of the right songs. And unfortunately, most of the time, the bands just can't write and deliver that sort of level of material. So that's where the guys like Howard Benson and, you know, a lot of the big rock producers have made a killing because they know how to write songs like that. For example, like when I listen to like Hailstorm, I kind of feel like Howard Benson wrote the whole record in his team. I can just tell the chords, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I know there, again, there's songwriters and things like that. But so I think in different markets, the rules change. And if a, if a deathcore band came to me or even like a hardcore band or like, dude, let's write together. I'd be like, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? You know, like can't write your own music. But yeah. when we're trying to write radio hits, you know, I feel like that is an art that is crafted over many, many, many long years. And um, the, you know, the guys who can really do it, you know, that's why you get a hundred grand for three songs. Yeah. Just- but look at what the target market is though for that. It's that's like, Going to the mainstream. So while some musicians may appreciate this, that's music that goes to non-musicians and it's not marketed to musicians. It's like if it's a song about partying, it's just it's it's like a song that'll be marketed to the TGIF crowd. And <laughs> it doesn't matter how it came about. That That's not integral to whether or not the song is good. But if you take a look at some of the genres that I deal in, like the way that this shit is marketed is by musicians for musicians. It's got to be authentic. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with the the concept of a producer-writer. Me a neither. producer-slash-writer, but where I get pissed is when it's not... Specified. Yeah. Yeah, or, or it's not set up properly. Like, uh, you know, the band just shows up and... They expect you to do it, but they're not ready to like sign a contract to share, you know, musical. They're trying um, to fuck you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, compensation <laughs> and stuff like that. So, yeah. Well, that's where communication, you know, back to like the, the, or the beginning of this whole podcast when we're talking about communication is key, communication is king. Uh, these types of things for your own, not just for being a good producer and, uh, giving a band a good experience, but for your own sake and not letting yourself walk out having had a bad experience or pissed off or fucked over, like all this type of stuff needs to be communicated well in advance. Like it can't be an accidental thing. Like, wow, now I'm writing. Wow, this band's not ready. I only booked X amount of time because I thought they were going to be ready. Now I have to write this with them. I'm not getting any publishing and what the fuck is going on? Like, that's not cool. Yeah, there was something that we kind of skipped over too and I wanted to uh, backtrack to it a little bit. We were talking about how it was important for some producers to be a little bit picky um, in the situation where you know, make sure that you're going to work with like-minded people or people that you can earn their trust. 
But what about the situation where uh, producers are having trouble getting business and they can't really be super picky and they always end up with the worst situations? I mean, what what was that? You showed me something, a uh, screenshot the other day, Al, where the band... Yeah. Do you remember that? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that was just one of, of quite a few. And look, this goes... At the end of the day, I claim responsibility for having said yes to this. You know, Joel, you said earlier, learn to say no. I need to take your advice and my own advice. We all suck at it. Yeah, like I have fallen prey to my own eagerness to please and my own eagerness to just have work coming through. And I've said yes to projects that were not ready to be recorded or that were not a good fit. But like, so for instance, I had a project earlier this year. Uh, I'm not going to name names. They were going to record it themselves and they just wanted a mix. And I listened to their pre-pro and was like, they're okay. What a big deal. A week out of my life, I can handle this. So they're recording themselves and uh, well, first of all, let me just say they give me the down payment. You know, we're set, we're locked in. I charge a good down payment to where someone got to lose an arm to reschedule. So we're locked in for the last week of a certain month, and they're recording themselves, and they're kind of not so sure about the vocals. You know, so it's just not going right. So they're like. Can we have you produce the vocals? This is really important to us. We want to get signed from this. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. I agreed to produce the vocals because what difference does it make if the vocals suck? Like, they're not going to get signed with bad vocals. So I have them bring the, the vocalist to me. And it turns out to be the worst vocalist I've had in 10 years. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like literally like and mind you i had just come off of recording the monuments vocals which are like some of the best vocals i've ever recorded and before that i had another vocalist that was just a genius so then i get this guy and he is fucking horrible he's trying to sound like chris cornell meets uh somebody else that's fucking awesome and doesn't know the first thing about holding a pitch or hitting a pitch. I mean, it was it was like a total situation of trying to pull like an Ironman uh, competition when you can't run a 5K. So it was it was fucking horrible. I convinced them to maybe do five songs instead of a full album because there's no way we could get it done. And then I had to let them know that well, we're not going to be able to get the mix done in that amount of time because now we have to edit these vocals. It's going to take forever to tune these. There's absolutely no way. So we're going to have to push back. And pushing back doesn't mean uh, just pushing back to some arbitrary date. It's got to be scheduled. So, all right. So we're editing these vocals, cleaning them up, tuning like crazy. And I do a creative live on songwriting and the guitar player decides that the songs are fucked up and... W improperly recorded i guess he watched andrew wade's creative live on songwriting and he's got to re-record everything so <laughs> <laughs> all right so yeah so i've got some vocals now but then that's all i've got uh this dude is starting from scratch so that takes about a month and I, I told them, I can't just start mixing this until you're done because we can't do this thing where like I get a song and then I wait for a week and get another. And It's funny when people think uh, they're the only client that you have. 
Well, here's the thing. You got to make them feel like it's you and them. And there's no one else. Yeah. And there's no one else. And they're the most important person in the world. But at the same time, you're not at their beck and call unless you're paid to be. I was not being paid to be at their beck and call. So shit needed to be rescheduled. So a month goes by. Dude re-records everything. And so then I get the files and it's like, okay, now we can schedule this mix. So sorry, but it's going to be about five weeks before we can even get to it. So five weeks go by and uh, my engineer and myself figure out some cool stuff to do with uh, drum programming uh, and real cymbals that, and we we do up a demo for them because we're doing this for all our clients that have programmed drums. And we're like, would you like it like this? Or would you like it like this? If you choose number A, which is just the MIDI and I run it through whatever and mix it, it'll take X amount of time. If you choose door number two, it's going to take longer. We're going to have to schedule the drum session and only then will we be able to start mixing? So they choose door number two. So mind you, through all these little decisions, they have added five or six months to their time. And uh, it's a horrible it's a horrible thing. Um, and it all started because their vocalist sucked. Um, <laughs> and, but I should have, if I had known better, I could have seen all of this coming and I would have just said no to the project to begin with or whatever. But I feel like somewhere there was a communication lapse. And so you have one guy in the band who understands, one guy in the band who thinks I'm the worst person on earth. And it's the real life situation that just got out of control. And I wish I hadn't ever agreed to do it. But I feel like the way that I would have fixed it, like it, going forward was as soon as I got the vocalist in and he was the worst vocalist ever to just back out of the project. Send him home and say Melissa Cross and come back when you're ready. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've done that before and it works. <laughs> My gosh, she is a genius. She is a total genius, but that's that's the whole that's the beauty of being able to say no and making the tough choices. Like if I that was I had weakness in that moment and I tried to fix what was unfixable. And then I ended up extending this project months beyond what it should have been, pissing people off. And all. And I had the best of intent. Uh, and it's. It, I let it get away from me. There's uh, a really cool picture um, by Banksy. And it's, I don't know what it's called, but it's, it portrays a boss and a leader and the difference between that. And it shows the boss sitting on a throne, looking at all the slaves and, and pointing forward and they're pulling the boss. And then the other one is a leader where he the throne is empty and it's behind all of the slaves and the leader's in the front of the slaves and he's helping them pull and he's pushing forward. And I think that's a very important um, concept to understand when you're in the role of the producer is you're not trying to be the boss, you're trying to be the leader. Well, I was trying to be the leader by encourage him to, to be better give me something better to mix like better yourself but i should have been the leader by saying this is not ready here's your money back i'll talk to you guys in six months the tough choice make the tough choice yeah yeah exactly yeah you kind of eat shit either way so. you look yes you eat shit either way but i just wanted to give you guys an example of so of 
one time where I made the wrong choice. And uh, currently, because we, uh, you know, this is stuff that no matter what level you're at, this is going to come up, whether you're first starting out or you're 15 years in, or you've worked with some signed bands or you sold gold records, like this kind of shit happens and making the tough choice doesn't get any easier. And I still have moments of weakness. And in my moment of weakness earlier this year, I fucked myself over with this project when I could have just you know, lost a few grand, which had been fine. It's not a big deal and not have any ill will or anything like that. Now the project is going to get done. It's going to sound great, blah, blah, blah. But that's, that's not the point. That's after all this heartache, uh, which could have been avoided if I had just said, sorry, guys, this, this isn't right. Well, there is one golden egg, and this I guess this goes back to our last podcast is, you, you know, remember we, I was talking a little about stoicism and look for the opportunity. Think about what you've learned out of it. And I guess it's the same for, you know, relating this back to what we were talking about and where this tangent has kind of all taken us is, you know, the, 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 the guy starting out or, you know, the more lower level recordist who's got to kind of take everything. This is where you learn to really cut your chops. And I mean, again, it's inevitable, but this is where you learn the hard lessons like, hey, you know, this happened. Here's the result. Okay, I approach this situation like this. And after you get a bunch of bands that have you've had, you know, issues like this over the years, you know, you learn how to minimize that sort of thing. And so there is an opportunity there. And what I'm saying is that there is ultimately a, a positive side to what seems like a pile of crap that, you know, is sometimes unavoidable. So you, you do get to learn how to see those things, predict them, and hopefully minimize the damage or avoid them. Well, yeah. And look, as much as people say, learn to make tough choices. You can only really develop the balls to make the tough choices by fucking yourself over a few times. Like, you got to fall flat on your face a few times and know what it feels like. You got to be in a situation where you were overconfident and bit off more than you can chew. You have to do that a few times in order to be able to understand why saying no and politely backing out is the right thing to do. And that makes me think of uh, a book that we were talking about that I recommend for everybody. And Joel, I believe you've read it. But the reason I'm recommending this book to an audience of producers and musicians is because this book is good for non-readers. It's only 76 pages long and the fonts are huge. So, Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's pictures in it too. Oh, the suspense are killing me. <laughs> it's a book called The Dip by Seth Godin, S-E-T-H-G-O-D-I-N. And the book is exactly about that, about how to know when it's time to back out of a bad situation or to not even get into one in the first place. And it basically takes you through a few phases of a project. And uh, and this is true of relationships. This is just true of life. Uh, first, you've got the honeymoon period, you know, which is like, you know, it could be once you're already in the project, uh, before things have gotten tough, like, and you're all stoked to be there and working together. Or it could be uh, early on, like when you first get the email, the honeymoon period, like, yeah, I've, I've got a project, I got a booking. Like if you're, if you're, uh, you know, in a tiny studio and just getting a booking is a big deal. Or is you're dating somebody and it's been the first nine months and it's it's great you know like the person could 
poop on your head and it would be like vanilla ice cream. It would be cute. <laughs> yeah, it would be cute. Yeah. <laughs> it, would, it would be like vanilla ice cream and strawberries raining from the heavens, you know, <laughs> like uh, that's the honeymoon period. But anything in life uh, that you go through the honeymoon period ends. So if you're in a band, for instance, it's the first year of touring where you are happy to eat shit. You're happy to be in the van. That $100 guarantee is $100 more than you were making before. Like, this is fucking cool. You're sleeping on people's you know, floors and, you know. That doesn't last forever. Nope, it doesn't. You hit the dip, and basically the dip is when that goes away. And... Things become tough, and you actually have to start motivating yourself to get through to the other side. Now, you have two choices at that point, which are throw in the towel or fight it out. And the this book helps you figure out when it's smarter to just throw in the towel. So, like, when I got that vocalist, that would have been the dip. And it would have been smarter for me to just bow out of the situation but instead i try to fight through to the other side and i'm still dealing with that mistake he was a non-unicorn right non-unicorn well maybe maybe well maybe he was like a black unicorn First like li- <laughs> yeah well just you know the other side of the bell curve just like the uh you know just a, man- uh, a mangled unicorn let's explain did you just really pull out the bell curve <laughs> chevy chef yeah yeah that, that could be shit. read the that could be misinterpreted let's tell people what unicorns are what what do we mean by that it's like a four-leaf clover. Uh, it, uh, it's something that, well, obviously unicorns don't exist. So that could be the joke too. Like, you know. Wait, they don't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought what? I saw one. Yeah, you can yeah. get unicorn meat on the internet. That's deep. <laughs> That's awesome. I guess, I guess the there's two ways of looking at it. Like you call somebody a unicorn. It basically means that they're so rare, it almost is impossible. Like like the singer from Monuments is so fucking awesome. That is a unicorn. I wanted to talk a little bit about how to deal with actual unicorns. And I don't mean the horse. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, sometimes you get into a situation where um, the artist is just like in the zone and they've got their own like agenda and they don't really need your... Well, they need your help, but in a different way. I'll, I'll give you a story. I was working with somebody, and uh, we were recording vocals. And one thing that you want to do when you're a producer is if somebody fucks up, you kind of you know hit stop and say, uh, this is what you could have done better, or maybe try doing this so that you know the next time we do this take, you'll get it right. Um, sometimes that can be the problem. Um, I was working with someone where you know, they said, Hey, uh, you know, I don't want to sound like a dickhead or anything, but if you could just like not say anything every, <laughs> every time I mess up, just hit stop, rewind and record again, because uh, every time that you try to tell me something, I start to lose my my mojo, whatever it is. So I was like, all right, I, you know, swallow my tongue, get it, get the job done. And as soon as I started to do what he asked me to do his takes got better and we finished the song and nailed everything. So sometimes you get into situations where you got to know when to get the fuck out of the artist's way. 
Yeah, that's that is one of the toughest things to do because I think in American culture especially and I realize not everybody listening to this is American, but a lot of you are and in America we're taught that you got to work harder and keep grinding and that is the best thing to do. So as an American producer or whatever, you kind of you have this this urge, this like weird instinct to get it to meddle with everything like you kind of got to get involved or you're not doing your job and in reality and you got to spot situations where you're doing your job by staying out of the way like that's the best thing you could possibly do the artist is so fucking awesome that you just need to make sure that the signal that you're capturing sounds great it's not clipping it's not too quiet it's going through the right pre right mic selection whatever and that's it fucking stay out of the way and that's i think you know just to tie this all together that's another one of those tough decisions you got to make you can always ask too i mean that's something that i find at least works for me is i'll sit down with the band and be like guys how involved is your expectation and the key word is expectation there do you do you expect me to be in your process you know do you want me to be really hands-on or how do you work what works for you guys in your experience tell me you know like joey you were saying earlier about um, interrogating a little bit. Who have you worked with? How is their style? How is their flow? And you can walk them through yours. You know, for example, like a pre-production meeting or, you know, just the meeting to see if you're the right fit for the band and you're going to get the gig. Sit down and just talk to them. And, you know, again, it comes to good communication. Just ask questions, find out what makes these guys tick and they'll be honest with you. I'm even willing to um, ask them. I'll I'll tell them how I want to do something and I'll say, do you guys like that? Are you down with it? Absolutely. Let me ask you something, Joel, because like... I agree it's it's important to do exactly what you said, but do you ever encounter bands who just say yes because they're being polite or will tell you that they're cool with stuff just just because it's in, they're nice guys or they don't have the communication skills? Like, Have you ever run into a situation where just asking them the questions isn't enough? Uh, that's a difficult one to answer because I can't pull a specific example out of my head i'd have to really think about it um but i've definitely encountered that you know that means you're a good communicator sometimes you know again body language to me is i would say one of the most important things because you know example if i pitch an idea like guys i think this hook sucks and i watch everybody in the band sit back cross their arms cross their legs in the chair and look down i know i just pissed them (laughs) off and i've just lost the room so i you know and they'd be like yeah dude yeah yeah you know and you could just no matter what comes out of their mouth you can really read what they're saying and you got to identify the patterns and again also what the key people in the band who are the decision makers so it's really hard. I mean, it's one of the hardest, most challenging things. You have to go in and just figure out what what these guys are telling you and if it's actually legitimate or if they're just bullshitting you because they're, for whatever reason, pissed or they're not feeling it and you know they're just going to get the product and then go bitch about it after they leave. I mean, you got to get inside their head one way or another. And again, body language for me is like my second line of defense for dealing with what you just said because you can see what comes out of their mouth, but when you can actually look into their eyes and you can see how they're gesticulating and responding to what you're saying, that's a much better indicator. Now, obviously you can't do that on the phone or the internet or over email or Facebook or whatever. Which is where a lot of business is happening these days. And that's why a lot of Correct. stuff is get, starting to get weird. And that's why this fucking podcast exists. <laughs> I, I think that Skype is a beautiful, beautiful invention. Video chat is great. And uh, not everyone's into it, but 
the way I see it is that's the next best thing to being in the room with somebody. You can at least see their expressions. You can understand if there's sarcasm. Uh, you can you can begin to realize when they talk about a certain story, they look down and to the right or something like that. Like you can start to read their body language via Skype and start to get a feel for what kind of person it is. And uh, that that definitely is as close as it's going to get to flying out. But, you know, there's a reason for why in business, like in real business, in the corporate world, people fly out for meetings. Yeah, it's not just because it's cool. It's because they want to experience the vibe of the room and how people are, you know, they want to read the full body language. And everyone has a rhythm too. Like a group of people has a rhythm, a room, a city, every, if you've ever traveled somewhere every, and you have to be able to read the rhythm of where you are, your surroundings, your situation. So, I mean, I feel like that's a great point because you really should, as a producer, when you're courting a band or they're courting you, you should really make an attempt to get in front of them face to face or over the internet face to face on Skype or find a way to get and physically sit down with them the best you can despite distance and really get to just look them in the eye and say, hey, guys, let's just talk about who we are and what we want to accomplish together. And it really helps in the beginning because, again, little problems or your big problems can start as little tiny seeds. Exactly. And a little misunderstanding can become a huge one, you know, three months into the record that no one would have foreseen that could have been prevented had proper courting yeah, been done. That's huge. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. And uh, just to drive the Skype point just a little bit further, um, you know, a lot of Hollywood auditions are done via Skype. Not That's like right, yeah. not not when you have like 5000 people all applying for the same job, but like when there's uh, situations where you have five stars all going for the same role and they're on, you know, all on different locations around the world and it just doesn't work. I've I've read recently that a lot of a lot of roles have been cast with a person doing a Skype audition. And so if in Hollywood that's enough, like if you can read if that's enough for a director to get the body language and everything from an actor, uh, then it should be enough for a producer reading a band. Jennifer Lawrence auditioned on Skype for Silver Linings. Did you know that? There you go. No, I didn't know that, but there you go. Yeah. Perfect example. So let's talk about the this there's this is an interesting concept. What happens when you are working with a unicorn again? <laughs> um, and they're really amazing and they're just smashing shit, one take, you know, one or two takes, and they're starting to get mad at you because you're not pushing them farther. Ooh, I had that happen to me. Oh man. I had that happen to me. You had that happen to you, Joel. Not really. I mean, usually you just get the fuck out of the way and let them be them. And it's not something that's occurred to me. It happened to me a lot. Man, I had that happen to me with this drummer who's like a machine. Like he is legendary. And I had heard all about him uh, from other producers. His name is uh, Shannon Lucas. And he used to be in the Black Dahlia murder. Then he was in Battlecross for a bit. Fuck yeah. Yeah, dude. Fuck yeah is right. He's like, a human machine and with feel, like basically the perfect metal drummer in so many ways, just so consistent and just so badass. And I remember hearing about him from the Audio Hammer guys before 
before I even got here. And then I worked on some Black Dahlia stuff where I got to replace the drums on on the record and do some mix engineering. And those were his drums. So I knew that this guy was phenomenal. And they were telling me that a lot of that Black Dahlia stuff was single take or two takes, no edits, like real deal. And I didn't believe it until I recorded him on Battlecross. And there it was, single takes. Or we would get halfway through a song, punch in at the break or at the tempo change, go all the way to the end and no need to edit it. It's fucking perfect. And maybe it's not a hundred percent on the grid, but it's got that, it's got that stank. Like it's got that, that little bit of a swing that makes it feel like the real thing, like authentic. And so there was no need to really mess with it. Maybe slide a couple things here and there. I'm talking like 15 minutes of drum edits per song. And, uh, I guess at one point, Shannon, who's a good friend of mine, I must say, Shannon uh, voiced a little bit of uh, a little bit of a problem with my methods because he said I wasn't pushing him hard enough, and that kind of blew my mind because it was like, well, it's perfect. What what else do you need? Yeah, like, where am I supposed to push? You're already nailing it. Yeah, here's what you do: stop him. Tell him it's screwed up and it's absolute shit, even though he's nailed it. <laughs> I've done that before. It, it works. And I'm like, dude, I can't believe you just busted out that take. That was absolute fucking garbage. Now, in reality, it's perfect. But then they get all pissed and then they do it even better. <laughs> so, well, see, that's cool. Most of the time. That's cool. I feel like there's there's some merit to what you just said, but I'm telling you, this shit was perfect. And the thing is, he didn't. it wasn't like you could piss him off and then suddenly he would play harder. Or with more balls. I mean, this shit was great. Like, this wasn't just, like, competent. This was fucking great. There was no need to... And, and we did, you know, we, we tweaked parts and stuff. And, you know, we, we did what we had to do. It wasn't just, like, Shannon shows up and I hit record and don't say anything and we're done. Like, there was maybe one or two songs like that. Obviously, when you're doing a whole album, we did get involved. We did change parts. We did consult with the band. Like, it took a minute to get through the drums, but it was so good that I, I didn't feel the need to push where it wasn't warranted. And uh, he felt like he needed to be pushed a little bit harder. That kind of blew my mind. And it made me think that some people feel like if they're not, I guess, getting sweaty if they're not like getting the mud up to their knees if, right if they're not if the elbow grease isn't there if you're not recording it a hundred times not good yeah absolutely yeah exactly for 16 hours straight you're not really doing the work and i just don't think that's true you have to learn to work smarter not harder when when it comes to this you're going to burn yourself out so if something is great then you need to learn to just to go with it and realize that some people might not agree, but you got to do what's best for the record. And again, that, that goes with making the tough choices. But just because you do 100 takes, that doesn't mean that take number 100 is going to be better than take number two. If anything, it's probably worse. Exactly. Yeah, they're tired. Yeah. And the drum heads are gone and your ears are shot. And and whatever you know you got to take a shit like who knows like <laughs> concentration too you lose your concentration and your attention span exactly you got to be able to recognize great things i guess yeah you know what i mean as a producer that's really the goal like if something's great there it is like don't fuck with it those moments sometimes can never be repeated i mean have you guys ever had a similar thing where something is great and you're like okay cool i'm gonna go with this and then the artist 
disagrees. Not that they think they could have done better, because that, at least in my situation, it wasn't, uh, I'm disappointed with my own performance. I could have done better. It wasn't a mismatch of expectation. I'm just saying, has there ever been a time where you are cool with something and the artist is cool with something, but the artist doesn't feel right about it because you guys didn't work for 16 hours or something. Yeah. That's a weird um, psychological thing too. You can get in like a cycle. I know a couple of vocalists who they feel like, you know, the first thing that comes out of their mouth is never going to be the one. And so they on purpose ask to do it over and over and over again. And I, sometimes you have to come in and say, are you sure that you want to do that again? Because that was actually really good. And I promise I'm not lying to you. <laughs> yeah, you have to convince them. You have to just be like, dude, you'd be fucking stupid to do it again. It was perfect. It was amazing. Get your ass in here. Listen to the fucking magic of this take. And then, you know, you got to use a little psychology and just get them in there, drag them in, play it for them, be like, Tell me that you can play that better because I've been watching you drum however long, you know, you can use it as ammunition and you're not going to do a better job. Like that was incredible. Sometimes they want to know that you care and it's all about figuring out how to show it. Yeah. Dude, Jason Sukoff used to do that to me. Like when Doth, my band recorded with Jason Sukoff as our producer, there are times when I would nail something that he was producing. Like I would nail it on guitar and he'd be like, that's great. And I'd be like, what do you mean that's great? We just, this is the <laughs> second take. He's like, that's great. Like, cool. Let's next, next, or double that. And I was like, what, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, <laughs> we, we just, we just started this riff. If it's like, great. It's great, yeah, man. Yeah. He'd be like, listen to it. It's great. Just listen to it. Trust me. Listen to it. And then I listen to it and be like, you're right. Okay. It's an important part of producing. You know, you really need to be able to carry the session on and be decisive and make decisions. And a lot of people like to save decisions for later and post edit. And at least I can only speak for me. I'm not like that. I edit as I go. I cut as I go. And I like to make decisions. And I said, okay, this is it. Any objections? Making decision, moving on. And I feel like, at least in my experience, it seems to be the records turn out better. They're more authentic and everybody's happier with them when we are really decisive about it and we make decisions. And the times I have artists in where we sit down and we d defer, again, I can, like I said, I can only speak from my experience, but it, it seems that it just turns out to be a clusterfuck. So I really try to push to be decisive. And I feel like that's something that's important for a producer is you have to be able to carry the session, progress it, know when it's time to move forward instead of sitting around and cutting fucking another 20 takes of the chorus vocal when it's unnecessary. Let me ask you guys both just, uh, just cause you brought up something and I realize it's probably situational, but, uh, Joel, so you edit while tracking, right? Yes. What about you, Joey? What's your preference? Yes, edit while tracking. Okay, and uh, I agree most of the time. Are there any... Oh, yeah, there's there's a good point to make there, actually. Um, that is actually situational because sometimes you'll work with someone where they just did a vocal take, you're sitting there editing it, and they're losing the mojo. They're losing yep. that. Yeah, and sometimes you have to know, like, okay... If I sit here and do what's best for me, it's not going to be what's best for them. Um, and sometimes you got to get the fuck out of the way. You got to learn how to pace them. You know, I mean, you get you can ask them too, like, hey, you know, do you like to sing for an hour or two hours? So, you know, when do you start burning out or, you know, then we'll sit down and we'll cop the stuff and we'll do all that. But let's roll while you're in the zone. We've got a question that goes with this. And it's uh, Walker Philip Tompkins. He asks, 
Have you ever had trouble with vocalists not being able to reproduce their stage performance in a studio? Not because they're a bad vocalist, but because the environment throws them off. Yes, but I gotta say that most of the time when an artist wants what they have live, you gotta start to ask, you gotta wonder what the fuck do they even mean? Because what are they even hearing live? Like what, what's their frame of reference to live? There's a lot of shit that goes into that. Exactly. It's not, it's not a simple yes or no. Like I know obviously it can be like vocalist is used to holding the mic and it's better to use a stand sometimes in the studio, but like it's actually a lot deeper than that. Like what is it about the live experience that the vocalist is craving? Is it, the volume, you know, is it the feeling of being on stage in front of a lot of people? Like, what is it? Is it screaming his ass off like a fucking crazy person and being able to run around? Like, what is it? Because that, once you figure out what that is, then you can reconcile the two, hopefully. As a producer, you really need to get inside the artist's head when they're delivering and performing. And I mean, every vocalist is different. I mean, some guys, I Gordon Ramsay the crap on. I just scream at them. I yell at them. I get in their <laughs> face and I get even a little physical, believe it or not. And sometimes some people you have to, if that's what it takes to get them in that mode. I mean, I've heard stories of like, um, I'm, I'm not sure if it may have been Ross Robinson and Corey Taylor of Slipknot were like, they just locked each other in the studio and just like brought each other to tears and fist fights. But that's what it took to get, you know, that record. And Oh yeah. He's known for that. Yeah. Yeah. So like as, as a producer, you know, sometimes you got to go in and just tear a guy's head off. Sometimes you need to be as light as a pillow. You need to be supportive. And, um, you, again, it's learning to read the people that you're working with and the artist and each individual's preferences. You got to learn what makes them tick. When you learn how to get into to somebody's head and really figure out what makes them tick, you can then use that to get an amazing performance out of them almost every time and get them in that zone. And as soon as you figure that out, that's like one of the linchpins, um, in my opinion, of producing and getting great takes. Linchpin, that's another Seth Godin book on the Seth Godin tangent. But I feel like this whole podcast uh, basically is pointing in a direction. And the direction that is pointing it in, is that producers could could help themselves out by studying a little bit of psychology, like actually making making an effort to formally. It, it may, I don't mean formally as in enroll in college and become a psych major, but actually st like read some books, subscribe to some newsletters, watch some YouTube videos about this stuff. What however you learn, it's okay but formally make yourself learn some psych 101 and study human motivation and also how to influence people. Absolutely. Because, yeah, because if you don't, how are you going to do your job as a producer? And I feel like that, like, you know, we, we can say stuff like you got to get in their heads, which is true. You do have to get in their heads, but how do you actually get in people's heads? And that is a whole field of study and that doesn't just happen you can't just say well next band that comes in i'm gonna to try to get in their head <laughs> like it, does, it doesn't just doesn't just work that way uh you know like you don't just suddenly develop the jedi mind trick like you will play this correctly i will play this correctly like uh you will stop being a whiny bitch i will stop being a whiny bitch <laughs> it doesn't doesn't work that way so 
um, it, it would be good for people who want to be good producers to actually, like I said, buy some books on psychology, buy some books on communication, buy some books on leadership. Body language. Yeah, body language, all that stuff. Study it, learn it, be it, feel it, eat it. Ooh. Here's uh, one more question. I think we're going to answer this and then wrap it up. Uh, Caleb Rodriguez asks, what helps keep you creative in the production process? And this can apply not just to producers, but also what are producers doing for musicians to keep them creative as well? Joey, I would love to hear what you have to say on this. I think for me, it's um, not the most obvious thing, but it has a lot to do with um, environment and uh comforts for example if the band likes to wake up at 5 p.m and record until 5 a.m then fuck it let's do that because i don't want anything getting in the way and that's why i'll set up a series of things to make sure that this happens for example the first thing is i want the drummer to be playing on his drum set i don't want him to come in and play on a studio kit or some amazing kit that he's never touched before because he's going to be trying to perform and say, oh, I've never played on this drum set before, so I can't fucking do what I'm trying to do. And that sucks. So sometimes you might think, oh, it'd be so badass if we had brand new guitars to record this record. Let's order a bunch of brand new guitars and get new strings and change our string size. And the vocalist starts drinking honey because he thinks it'll make his voice sound better. <laughs> no, fucking don't do any of that stuff. That's that's dumb. Like you're going to get to the studio. You're going to play on the new drum set, the new guitars you never touched before. I'm fascinated. Your throat's going to be all fucked up. And now your whole process is ruined. And sometimes you don't need to fix what's not broken. Wow. I'm actually fascinated. Can we talk about this a little bit? Because yeah. that's actually the opposite of like the audio hammer style of doing things. That's and, awesome. And like, you know, all right. Yeah. Let's talk about this. Cause like, you make awesome shit. We've made awesome shit. So, uh, you know, I guess at the end of the day, there's more than one way to skin a cat. But, like, let's talk about this. So, like, here, here's why I don't like to use a drummer's drum set, especially if they're a touring band. The That drum set has been through every weather change you can imagine. And who the hell knows? Who the hell knows if it was left outside in a blizzard or if it was left outside in Florida? Who knows what the fuck has happened to the wood? If the what state of maintenance it's in? I've noticed that touring kits don't the the tuning won't hold up quite as well and you just have way way more issues as opposed to uh having a bunch of drums to pick from and a lot then, of technical issues are getting in the way of what the goal like the sound yeah exactly now however i know exactly what you're saying where you then have the problem of the drummer not being comfy with the setup but the way that i get around that is by making them play for a few hours a day as we're building the drum set but like that yeah i just i just I, I hear what you're saying, though. Obviously, if they're not comfortable, they're not going to do their best. And so then what's the point? I just like to make it so that they can't complain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So you're not going to tell me, oh, it's the guitar. Oh, it's the strings. Oh, it's the drum set. Uh, oh, it's the time I, I woke up earlier than I normally woke up. Uh, no, fuck that. 
<laughs> I want to get on your level so that we're in your zone and we're doing, you know, what works for you. Now, what's interesting about that, you guys, I make a lot of my bands produce results by making them uncomfortable. <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. Um, I work best under pressure and I find a lot of people, if you can create pressure, whether internal, external, um, fabricated or even real, um, generally it can really promote performance. I'll give an example, songwriting. If you told me to write a song right now, or I was sorry, if I was sitting down in my room and just dicking around, I'm not going to write shit. But when I got five dudes standing behind me and I'm like, I got eight hours today with this band and I need to write a number one single, my mind goes, holy shit. And my focus kicks up and I'm just like, go. And I'm going to go in and just absolutely decimate and do the best I can. And we always end up with something more at the end of the day, better than we thought we were going to end up with. So I try to create pressure and, um, you stress, positive stress. I guess that's what I'm saying. And again, not every, this, my style isn't going to work for everybody. You know, everybody's got a different take and it's pretty cool. Um, but for me, it's creating you stress and positive pressure that really says, okay, man, we're under the fucking gun. Like we've only got X amount of time to do this. We've got to do it. And it's got to be amazing. And everybody usually, you know, I, I'm able to, like I said, in my experience, pull out peak performance out of people and make songs and records that, you know, we better than we thought they would start with. So that's kind of my approach. I'm a little bit more like, yeah, cause there could be a little bit of a weakness in over planning. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've ever gotten this from a band, but, uh, this, this doesn't happen anymore, but I remember back in the early days before the trust was established, uh, when I would sometimes get these schedules from control freaks of like from Monday to Tuesday at this hour, at this hour, we will do this and this, we will get tones, <laughs> tones. And uh, you, you've ever gotten that? It's like, what planet are you on? Oh my God. That's fucking weird. I tell yeah. them to fuck off and I say, listen, here's how we're going to do things. And then I explain it to them and they're like, okay, <laughs> you know, and you just, you, we got to, sometimes if you're doing with like a local band or whatever, you got to work around the work schedules and stuff like that. But you know, you can't let the band fuck with, if you've got a flow that really works and you've got this down to a science over years of experience, you can't let some random straggler come in and just totally throw the whole fucking thing out of whack because, you know, they think they know what's best, but they don't have the experience. That's a good point. Yeah. You're basically what you're saying is in my situation where I'm like, let's make everyone absolutely fluffy and comfy. Um, don't let them fucking control everything though. Yeah, you're going to know what works best for you. I mean, you'll you'll intrinsically yeah. feel it. And again, the, the key is you develop a process as a person, as a producer, and it, you know, it gets reinforced over time and you get to try out a bunch of shit and everybody comes to a little bit of a different conclusion and way of doing things. And that's part of their sound. You know, that's how they get their results. But you know what? I got to say something, even though on the surface, it seems like, Joey, you and I have different methods about this. It actually is unto the same end which is you say you want the band to be comfortable and i want the band to be comfortable too now the thing is like what if you know because i'm a guitar player i've got a lot of guitars sukov's got a lot of guitars mark's a guitar player so we've got like 25 guitars here and and a lot of them are way better than the guitars of the bands that come in a lot of these guys you know get like the bottom level endorsements and they come in with who knows what with what <laughs> like pickups and just piece of shit whatever and it's nothing compared to what we've got and 
Uh, and tone-wise, it's just, you know, what we have is often far superior. However, as we know, tone is mainly in the hands. So if the guy can't play comfortably, what difference does it make what guitar you're giving him? But the way I get around that is, say that there's three guitars up for the for possible rhythm guitar, you know? It's going to be yeah. one of these three. And we figured it out early on. I will actually... Uh, lend the if if like we did a shootout and none of their guitars are good enough and they and they agree, I'll let them borrow in their guest room all three of those guitars and like like I will get on them about practicing and like from this point on like any pre pro that you're doing in the guest room or anytime that you're practicing, like you're no longer using your guitars, you're using this guitar that we're going to use. And then, you know, since we got to do drums first within a week or so, they're totally comfortable. So that, yeah. that's how I get around it. But I see how that works. And I, I should clarify too. It's not like I say, uh, no, we have to use your guitar. I get people that come in and they might see my guitar sitting over there and they say, Hey, can I play this? And sure. Yeah. I'll play it. And then, uh, 10 minutes later, they might be asking, hey, can we use this to record with? And, mm -hmm. just, you know, nine times out of 10, and I'm, I'm like, sure. <laughs> you got to go with the flow. Yep, go with the flow and uh, just try to work with the people that are, you know, in the room and um, do what's best for getting the best results. And that's part of like, you know, you can't teach this, but that's what comes with time and experience is like knowing what's going to be best for the song and what's going to be best for the project. And I think it's just trial and error. It's something you learn over time with more experience. Absolutely. Do we have any more good questions? Let me take a look here. I love Q&A. Me too. We need more questions. Questions and anal. <laughs> <laughs> this is a cool one. Uh, this comes from Randy Nassworthy. Uh, he asks, do you have any pre-recording rituals? Go beat up a bum. <laughs> <laughs> is that real no <laughs> no of course not <laughs> how else would you start a record come on <laughs> how about you joel pre-recording rituals um to be honest uh you guys are probably gonna be like what the fuck and i know you especially you joey i really don't like to do a lot of pre-pro and again this may sound really fucking weird and counterintuitive but for me it works especially because I write a lot with a lot of my bands, but I want to be inspired and under pressure at the moment to, to create the you stress for me to hit peak performance as a producer. So I kind of like to say to the bands, okay, do all your pre-pro, but I'm not going to hear it till the first day because when I hear it the first time, instead of through the internet and I've got all this time to analyze it, I'm going to react to it emotionally and on like a physical level. And I'm going to be like, this song moves me. This song is shit. This song is shit. Let's do this. And I'll use that as a guide and that initial inspiration. So I, for me, it's like, I want to get inspired and I want to be drawn towards material that inspires me. So when people bring in like songs and things like that, that are, you know, kind of like in rough form and we're looking to pick some stuff, I really like not having a direction and more so just kind of come in and let's just go under the gun and under the clock when we're on the clock, because it's going to make me be really a decisive and b really react to what's most inspiring and that we're all, everybody in the band's like, Oh yeah, yeah. We really like this. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's do this song. Everybody in. Yeah. Awesome. And then we go. I think that's smart. And uh, I have a way around it that I learned from Sukov, which is if you're going to do pre-pro with a band, get drum tones first. And uh, be yeah, get the drum tones first and be ready to record. Like be capturing good quality DIs and don't just fuck around because it's pre-pro because 
nine times out of ten, what, when you get into the flow of it and you, what you start creating will become the album. It could snowball at any minute. Exactly. And you want to be ready for that. And you don't want to have to go and try to recreate you know, lightning striking. So, yeah. so you just got to be ready. So that's actually kind of in line with what you're saying, Joel. Uh, like even if a band has a week of pre-pro booked or something, we still will get drum tones and like be ready to go. Yeah, that's awesome. I totally agree. I love it. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us on this episode. Um, if you are into what we're doing, go to www.joeysturgis.com slash podcast. You can, uh, vote for topics you can uh, ask us questions and we'll try to answer them on the air and thanks for listening thank you thank you now fuck off (laughs) fuck off (laughs) the unstoppable recording machine podcast is brought to you by creative live the world's best online classroom for creative professionals with classes on songwriting engineering mixing and mastering go to creativelive.com slash audio to start learning now The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Protone Pedals, the secret tone weapon for guitar experts everywhere. Go to ProtonePedals.com to take your tone to the next level. To ask us questions, suggest topics, and interact, visit URMAcademy.com and subscribe today.